Lord, show your kindness to us now and teach us. Um, help us live lives where more and more of Christ is shown through them. I pray your word would be our guide towards that today. Lord, may every speck of your word that we see today have its way with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. We are in the process of going through the entire Bible in about six months worth of Sundays. And we have so far made it all the way through the first five books of the Bible, which is sometimes called the Pentateuch by people who like to feel important when they use big words. Pentateuch. So now you'll know you can use it too and you can feel important. It just means five books. First five books of the Bible. And we're now moving... Today we're going to make a foray into the historical books, um, which are historical. So you'll get a little different flavor today as we, we begin that process. We're hopefully going to look today at the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. At the close of our service, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And at Northwake, the Lord's Supper is open to anyone who's a follower of Christ who's currently walking in fellowship with Him. If there's sin that you're not fighting against and you're not at the point where you're eager to fight against it and lay it aside, then you need to deal with that first and then come. But if you come today in need of grace, eager to be free from your sin, the table is open for you. And I hope you'll join us in that celebration at the close of our service. Um, the first 12 books, first, excuse me, first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua take us into that land of promise at last. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, trying to get into the land of promise. Finally, the book of Joshua, they get in. And the first half of the book is about um, conquering that land because there were enemies of God in the land, enemies of God's people who had to be driven out. And the last half of the book is mostly about settling that land and what shape uh, that would take. So in Joshua chapter 1... Hmm. There we go. Thanks. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. I think my thing's broken, so I'm going to try to sink it again. It's still broken. You're just, when I do this, it means that I'm trying to change the slide. You just help me out back there. Thank you. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, Joshua, nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And with that, 
Joshua is essentially commissioned to take Moses' place in leading the people into the promised land. The book of Joshua is really about the playing out of the promise God made to his people back in Deuteronomy 28. It says in there, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow those commands, I give you today the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth and all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. And in Joshua, mostly the people are obedient and the blessing of God is upon them. So that's really what's working out in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends two spies from Shittim and says, go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. A couple of things of interest just in this second chapter of the book. First of all, you notice he just sends two spies? He doesn't send 12. Because last time he sent 12 or 12 or sent 10 of them were not worth the bother. So he just sends two. He's expecting a good report from two spies, please. So he sends just two guys into the land. And they stay, interestingly enough, in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, this is an amazing story. So as you read the book of Joshua later this week, or the excerpts, I'll send you, and I'll send out the highlights so you can make it through these three books this week. Read chapter 2. It's an amazing story of how God uses this unlikely woman to rescue his people and how she is in turn, or to protect the spies anyway, and how she is in turn wildly used by God as a result of that. The spies, in verse 24, come back after having been sheltered by Rahab. And they said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And so he gets what he's hoping for, a good report. And down in chapter 3, Joshua tells the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And then he gets them ready to enter the promised land. And to do that, they have to cross the Jordan River. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood state all during the harvest. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet, feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great heap, a a great distance away. And then they give some historical details about that. Now, before I was a pastor, I was a civil engineer. And my specialty was hydrology and hydraulics. What I did was build computer models of rivers and streams to determine flooding problems and then solve them. We didn't have a model that did this. There wasn't a way to heap up water at flood stage so that you could somehow cross it. This is not something you do with computer models. This is something that God does. This is a miraculous intervention of God on behalf of his people. And it says there that the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan River at flood stage when all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And then he has them do something real interesting. He says, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan River, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. 
Each of you to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the, water of the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So once they cross, they make this big pile of 12 stones, one for each tribe that crossed. And those were to stay there forever. So you can imagine for generations, dads are bringing sons down to the edge of the Jordan River. And the kids are saying, what's that pile of stones, dad? And they're saying, oh, that's where God did an amazing thing for our people. We have similar things today. That's what this Lord's table is about. This is our, our pile of stones that helps us remember our great deliverance. So that when our children say, what's that bread and what's that juice for, dad? Mom, tell me what it's for. We say, oh, it's about the great deliverance of God on our behalf for our people. When Christ gave his life on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. It's all about remembering. You picked up on that in Deuteronomy. It continues here. God does not want his forgetful people to forget. And he goes to great lengths to help us remember. You had an example in the meditation and preparation email that went out this week. Um, the Creswells keep a, a manager at the house and they stuff the things that God does. They write it on a piece of paper, stuff it in there. At Thanksgiving, they read them as a way of remembering what God has done on their behalf. And if you're not a part of that, if you don't get that email yet, you can just call our office or email Shannon, our office, and we'll put you on that list. But in this case, they enter the promised land, and they're prepared to take the land and win great battles. And God blesses that effort as you read the book of Joshua because they're obedient. It's contingent on their obedience. Over and over again, it'll say, don't stray from my commands. If you, do, if you don't, if you'll be obedient, then I'll bless you and you'll dwell in the land and prosper there. Um, so it's contingent on that. But even more than that, it's contingent on God fighting for them. It's not by their own strength. And God goes to outlandish lengths to make sure they see this. He sets up battles that any sane person would never fight. And never fight them in this way. So that the people will see it's not about Joshua. It's not about great military strategy. It's about the Lord. And probably one of the great case studies in that kind of battle is this battle that some of you have been singing about since you were a child. That's the Battle of Jericho. And that's recorded in chapter 6. Their battle strategy given to them by God was to march around the city each day for six days, and then go back to camp. That was it. That's how God pro- proposed that they take the city. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And that's, that's what happened. They shouted, the walls of that fortified city fell down, and they took the city. And the whole purpose of this entire battle strategy is in that last phrase that I read. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. It's not about their strategies. It's not about superior military might. It's about God. 
and the Lord fighting for them in response to their faithful obedience. Now, they just come off of this tremendous victory at Jericho, and they go up to the next city of Ai, and they are absolutely shocked when they send up what's supposed to just be a little outing with a couple of thousand soldiers. They get routed, um, it says. In chapter 7, about 3,000 men went up to that city, but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed them, about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. This is not the way it was supposed to happen. They're in the land of promise. God's with them. Part the Jordan, conquer Jericho. They're on a roll. They go to the next city and they get routed. What is that about? Well, it turns out it's about disobedience in the camp. See, back when they fought Jericho, they were given some very specific instructions by God. He said, Jericho, the city... And all that's in it are to be devoted to the Lord, meaning no plunder in part. You can't carry stuff off. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, things that are set apart for the Lord, everything else, so that you'll not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Problem was, there was a man named Achan who took some of that plunder and hid it in his tent. And what followed was, as a result of that act of disobedience, was defeat in battle um, as a result of their disobedience as a nation. Now, we're reading these stories. You're going to read through the book of of Joshua, I hope, this week. And you'll read about this idea that they're supposed to go into a city and they kill everybody. Man, woman, and child. They kill all the critters. Um, It's brutal. And uh, that doesn't set very well with those of us who are raised kind of on a New Testament God of love concept. It doesn't fit in real well. So a couple of things that need to be understood in terms of background for what's going on here that might help us frame that, though it's still difficult for us to read and understand, is first of all, the absolute moral depravity of the Canaanite culture, the people that lived in that land. They were evil. Way back in the book of Genesis, God indicated in Genesis 15 that he was going to wait for about four generations until their evil had reached a point that it had matured and he had to judge it before God's people would come into the land. God has been patient with the Canaanites for four generations. And yet their depravity is unequaled in those cultures. Here's what one historian says. He says, The amazing things about the gods in Canaan is that they had no moral character whatsoever. In fact, their conduct was on a much lower level than that of society as a whole. If we can judge from ancient codes of law, certainly the brutality of the Canaanite mythology is far worse than anything else in the Near East at that time. Worship of these gods carried with it some of the most demoralizing practices in existence. Child sacrifice, sacred prostitution as an act of worship, 
and snake worship on a scale unknown amongst other peoples. So they had become so radically depraved before a holy God that this was a judgment upon their entire culture. So God did it as a judgment upon the wickedness of the Canaanites, but he also did it because of the vulnerability of his own people. We see it over and over, but back in Deuteronomy, he says, look, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance in the promised land. Don't leave anything alive that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the pagan peoples of the land, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, and here's, here's the reason, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. You'll do child sacrifice. You'll do sacred prostitution. You'll be involved in snake worship. And you'll sin against the Lord your God. So that's the backdrop for this kind of destruction that's going on in this book of, of Joshua as you read it. Well, at the end of the first half of Joshua, the land is largely, but, but not completely, conquered. Um, and in the back part of the book, there's a lot of just divvying up of the land. And I'll be honest with you, unless you're really into Bible geography... Okay, getting out the map and seeing where that river is and where that mountain might be, this is highly skimmable stuff. Okay? You want to just kind of look through, if you're trying to read this week, and get a sense for the fact that God is equitably dividing up the land. The people are in, this is a great act of obedience on their part, and it also demonstrates God's great concern that there should be no poor in his land, but that all people should have what they need in order to live and earn a living. And God distributes that land equitably along those lines. But right in the middle of all of this uh, Bible geography is a chapter you do not want to skip. Chapter 14 in the book of Joshua. Now you remember Joshua was one of the two good spies who came back with a good report. The other one's name was Caleb. And chapter 14 is about Caleb. And this is what Caleb says in chapter 14. Now then... Caleb says, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So he was in that wandering group in the desert, him and Joshua. So here I am today, 85 years old. So here's this 85-year-old guy, and he says, I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out and battle now as I was then. He is a fiery 85-year-old guy. He's ready to go take on some Canaanites. He says, now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. And so Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. And so Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since because he followed the Lord the God of Israel, wholeheartedly, all of his days, until 85, when he's still taking God at his word and believing his promises are true. Now, I just hit the half-century mark. And would that God would give me 35 years left like Caleb. And the other thing you'll see about this kind of thing is when you get to the end of the book of Joshua, which we'll look at in just a minute, 
Joshua is pushing 85 too. And the two most challenging calls to God's people don't come from 20-somethings. They come from guys in their 80s who are white hot after God. And so those of us who are leading the way in a rather young congregation, that's our job. That as we grow old, we will call the young men to trust God in ways that they never have, that they've never seen. But anyway, um, Joshua is Caleb's cohort. Um, Just as Deuteronomy ends with Moses' closing words, you get to the back, the last two chapters, 23 and 24 of the book of Joshua. They are Joshua's last words. And they are stunning. Men, especially this week, do not miss the opportunity to reread or to read for the first time Joshua chapter 23 and 24. Here's just one little taste. Joshua stands before the leaders of his people and his people, and he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. So it's this stunning call from this aged Joshua to this young nation to trust and serve the Lord alone. And today at the close of our service, we'll close by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I think what a great act of worship would be that as you come to the Lord's table today, you'd be consecrating your heart to serve Him wholly. And that the words of Joshua and and the people of God at that time might be on your lips. Um, We too will serve the Lord. Well, Joshua, as I said, it's the outworking of this promise in Deuteronomy chapter 1. You'll be blessed in the city, you'll be blessed in the country if you obey. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 3, that is. Now, the book of Judges that follows is also an outworking of Deuteronomy 28 a few verses later where God says, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. And whereas it went largely well with God's people in Joshua because of their obedience, it goes south on them in Judges because of their disobedience. In the very first chapter, it says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They're conquering the land. They're driving out the Canaanites. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. It was hard. They hadn't counted on iron chariots. And so the rest of that first chapter just chronicles their partial obedience. They drove them out here, but didn't drive them out here. 
They drove them out there, but they didn't drive them out here. And partial obedience is disobedience before a holy God. And it leads God's people down a path that they regret um, from the start. In chapter 2, it says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, the generation that died in the desert, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, false gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. This is the polar opposite of the book of Joshua. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great, great distress. Now, in his mercy, God does this. He raises up judges who saved the people out of the hands of those raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. When the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel. And to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Um, There's a cycle here that repeats itself over and over and over in the book of Judges. Um, You heard it as that was read. It looks like this. The people choose to sin. That leads to oppression. They figure out that it was a bad deal to sin and they cry out to the Lord. He sends a deliverer and rescues them. The deliverer dies and they fall back into sin. And they are oppressed because of it. And then they cry out to the Lord. He sends a deliverer. The deliverer dies. They fall into sin. This happens ten or so times in the book of Judges. It is a cycle that God's people are tragically, tragically caught in. Sin, oppression, cry to the Lord, and deliverance through the judge. Now, one of those ten or so judges who are chronicled in the book of Judges is a fellow named Gideon. And his story is told Uh, starting in chapter 6. Again, watch for that cycle as we read. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, 
the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So they're in the promised land of milk and honey, hiding in caves because of their disobedience. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. And there's that cycle again. Sin oppression, cry to the Lord. And then he sends a prophet who's followed by a fellow named Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. And Gideon replied, if now I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. I mean, Gideon, we see one of the things that's peculiar about judges, and that is God has a really unusual choice of deliverers. He picks the smallest clan, the youngest guy in the family, the most unlikely candidate to be a deliverer. And his faith is somewhat suspect. God is speaking to him, but he needs a sign to convince him. He gets his miraculous sign. He wants another sign to convince him. And then finally, God gives him, he's convinced. God gives him a task to go obey. He does it at night because he's afraid of what his dad might think. This is not a likely candidate for deliverance. At the end of his life, Gideon fashions out of gold something that leads his whole family into idolatry. And Gideon, honestly, is probably one of the better judges in the book of Judges. You got other ones like Samson. Samson was not the best guy, but God used him greatly. Why is God picking these odd-shaped judges? What happened to, like, Joshua and the boys, the good guys? Why picking these lesser ones? I think the simple answer to that is because it's, God wants us to see it's really not about the judge. It's about God. The less than stellar judges are chosen so that it's clear that God is the ultimate deliverer. And, and this is God's pattern, even to this day. That's why I'm your pastor, okay? I am no threat to God's glory. Okay? It's how God works. He loves to use people who are unlikely, odd-shaped folk for his glory. That's why you're here. Because God wants to use you and me, odd-shaped, unlikely folk that we are, for his glory. And he arranges again the battles to pull that off. See, early in the morning... Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod, getting ready for battle with Midian. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to him, Gideon, you have entirely too many men. 
for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. There's that theme. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. So two-thirds of Gideon's army bails. The Lord says to Gideon, there are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll sift them for you there. And they go through this kind of elaborate sifting process. And by the way they drink water, 300 men are identified and singled out. And I know Gideon's thinking, I'm going to lose 300 more men. And instead, God sends away 9,700 men and leaves him with 300. And as near as I can tell, there's some numbers given a couple um, pages later in your Bible about the number of troops they're fighting. At this point, Gideon has gone from 32,000 soldiers to 300 um, against a force that could number as high as 135,000. So you get the picture? 300 against 135,000, and God says, perfect, just the way I like it. Because God's glory is going to be greatly preserved in the eyes of the nations, but especially in the eyes of his people. But the cycle continues. Chapter 8, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals, to those false gods. They set up Baal Barith as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They won that battle of 300 versus 135,000. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Gideon for all the good things he had done for them. Um, This cycle is prevailing throughout Judges. And so I, I want us just to stop for a minute and learn a couple of things from it. First of all, the cycle teaches us that God is holy, and so as a result of that, you can bet that sin leads to oppression. That's where sin leads. It's what sin does. And a holy God uses that for his purposes in our lives. Nothing has changed in that regard. Secondly, God is compassionate. He hears the cries of his wayward people and he sends a deliverer. This is what God does. It's what he has done for us. 1 John 4 says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son, Jesus, to be the Savior, to be the deliverer of the world. And cry out to God and he sends his Son on our behalf. Lastly, this cycle teaches us that God is powerful. He can deliver, and he will. It is what God does. So the book of Judges really is marked by this pattern over and over and over and over. And the last part of the book is dark. Chapter 17 to 21, their immorality plays out in graphic terms. It's hard to read, to be honest with you. But in the middle of these dark days, in the middle of the days of the judges, there's a beautiful story that shows us how God is sovereignly working even in the darkest of times. And I think it can be a great encouragement to us these days. Um, The book of Ruth contains that story. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, okay, in those dark, 
evil, wicked, suffering days. There was a famine in the land, no surprise. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. They left the promised land. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. She's a main character in the book of Ruth. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So if a famine's not bad enough, leaving the promised land's not bad enough, Naomi's husband now dies, and she was left alone with her two sons. It gets worse. I told you it's a happy book, but you've got to wait through the first few verses to get there. They married Moabite women, her sons did, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Ruth is the main character of the book that bears her name, humanly speaking. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband outside of the promised land. It is a dark start um, to the book of Ruth. But we're introduced to Ruth herself early on in the first chapter. They're weeping at this point um, because... Naomi has decided to return to the promised land. Um, And she's sending her daughter-in-laws back to Moab, the land of Moab, to stay there with their people and with their gods. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where your people go, I will go. And where you stay, I will go. I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So this Gentile woman from another land has become a believer in Yahweh. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth is loyal to a fault in this book. Um, To her mother-in-law, and she displays great faithfulness to the true God. She rejects the chance to return to the gods of Moab and declares Yahweh to be her God. So we're introduced to an element of hope that unfolds through the book and it ends in this fashion. A man named Boaz shows up um, mysteriously and providentially in their lives when they return to Israel. You'll have to read it to catch all those wonderful details. And Boaz, this man, takes Ruth, and she, the widow Ruth, becomes his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Ruth's mother, mother-in-law, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. And Naomi took the child, her grandson, and laid him in her lap and cared for him. So this is kind of like in Job-like fashion we see what's happening to Naomi. She is in famine and a widow early in the book. She and Ruth both. And at the end of the book... God has restored their fortune such that they say, though she lost two sons, this daughter-in-law, Ruth, is worth seven sons to her. God has blessed her even greater at the end of the book than at the beginning. And Ruth, this Gentile woman, 
finds herself believing in the true God, living back in the promised land with a caring husband of great character and integrity and now with a son given to her. She is wildly blessed. But there's more, even more, to the blessing upon Ruth and Naomi. The women living in that city said, Naomi has a son, a grandson. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. There's a purpose in this. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz, now we're into our story in Ruth, right? Boaz the father of Obed. Um, Ruth's son, Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. Now, these same names show up in another genealogy that opened the New Testament. If you turn to the first page of the New Testament of your Bible, you'll see that Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, same characters, you see them? Um, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. See, Ruth has been, through terrible hardship and loss, drawn into a place of such blessing that not only is she blessed with his son, but all the nations will be blessed through her. We're blessed through Ruth because her son is one of the chains in the link that would lead to the Messiah, Jesus. We call him the Christ. During the... The times of the judges. This is like the dark ages in Israel's history. You can see God is at work. And you ladies who are here this morning, I hope you'll read Ruth again this week. What a treat. You're looking for heroines these days, examples for you and for your daughters. Ruth is stunning in this book. But even more stunning than Ruth is the example of a God so sovereign that he takes the worst hardship a woman could ever bear of a famine driven out of the land of promise, losing her husband, all redeemed for good. Such is the God of the book of Ruth, who is our Redeemer, who points us, this theme of a Redeemer in the book of Ruth points us rather co- covertly to the New Testament where we find that Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Um, Peter would say it this way, you know, that, you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He has chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. And so this morning, just like God's people remembered his goodness in so many ways um, in these Old Testament stories, we want to obey God and remember him as we celebrate his table together today.